Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome to you all. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host for this ongoing free telecouncil series, Restorative Justice and Social Healing in the United States and Beyond. This is a free series that has been happening since last year and seems to be quite in tune with the times. Uh, we seem to be living in a great opportunity phase systemically. And this telecouncil is a platform for offering education, awareness, and just simply deep dialogue and sharing surrounding these issues that are global as well as very much local. But tonight I'd just like to say a few words, uh, as I usually do, about the format of our call. We'll be participating with our very special guest for an hour. And just right up front, I want to make it very well known to those of you who are just new with us that every time we come together in this way, I like to keep the lines open for you to ask questions, make comments um, to our special guest, or just simply to make a reflection. By pressing 1 on your telephone keypad, you can do that. Anytime throughout tonight's call, please feel free to do so, and I'll try to do my best to get to you. Um, once I'm alerted that, that you have something you'd like to offer. Tonight's call is uh, also going to be recorded, uh, as are all of the, the special telecouncils. And you can find those at mollyrowanpresents.com, which is my website. That's mollyrowanpresents.com. There's archives up for, um, uh, all the way back to last um, late summer with some very special guests including Azim Kamisa, Dominic Barter, James O'D, Dr. Judith Thompson, uh, Belvi Rooks, and D. Don Gills of Growing a Global Heart, and many, many more. Um, so please feel free to go visit my website for any and all of those archives, including tonight. Without further ado, I just, um, I mean, I have a lot of great and wonderful guests that, that come and join me on this series, and you, um, and us together. And, and tonight, th this special guest, she's actually been dialoguing with me and with community members here in Colorado around um, some very practical grassroots restorative justice action in response to um, a violent crime that happened not long ago in the community where I live. And she's really devoted her life um, in a very unique way, um, in a very attuned way as a, a former attorney. And uh, well, actually, she, yeah, she's a former trial attorney. And um, she holds an MA in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a JD from Boston University School of Law also an MA in Public Administration from UC Berkeley. So my very special guest tonight, Sylvia Clute, she also is, to me, one of the world's foremost voices in unitive and restorative justice. And tonight she's going to be sharing a lot about uh, what those things mean and how they are on a huge upsurge in our times. And I'd love to recommend if you don't already know about the fact that she's written a very powerful book, please by all means check out Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality, A Call for Compassionate Revolution, which she wrote, which is I'm sure going to make its way all around the world and be known as one of the handbooks of a very, very fast-growing movement in systemic change in our criminal justice and beyond. She also um, has a new, fairly new radio show on Blog Talk Radio. Every Sunday you can catch Sylvia uh, with her show, Unitive Justice with Sylvia Clute. That's 3 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. And for more information in general about her work and um, her offerings, please visit her at sylviaclute.com. So without further ado, I just just want to welcome you to tonight's circle, Sylvia, and thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you, Molly. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. 
And it's wonderful to to just have someone like like yourself who ha is deeply vested and also um, highly trained and skilled in the field of law, speaking to something um, in such a way as you you do, and and also modeling it in your communities. And I wondered if um, if you might start out tonight, Sylvia, by talking a little bit about your just your, your the journey that you've been on and what brought you into being such a voice for restorative and unitive justice in our world. And tell us tell us a story if you like. <laughs> All right, um, that's a good place to begin. I uh, well, let's see. I, w I was in the Peace Corps in the '60s. So that was sort of the beginning of a journey of many adventures. So I was in the Peace Corps. I came back and a while later got married and then uh, entered law school uh, when I had a, let's see, our baby was born in July and I entered law school in August, September or so. So I entered law school with a, a small baby and... Um, began studying what I was told was the best legal system that could be devised. It was actually, there were still quotas for women and minorities, so there weren't many of us who had contributed to making it what it was or who were permitted at that time to be a part of it. However, those quotas became, um, they were, if you wanted federal funds, you had to give up your quotas while I was in law school. So basically, the quotas fell by the wayside during that time. And more and more women and minorities have become a part of all of the major professions that they were previously excluded from. So anyway, I entered, a, entered being told that this was the best that could be designed when it came to a justice system. And I didn't question it because I didn't have any basis to question it. It's, um, I can tell you now, I've since found out, although I didn't realize it at the time and it was never described this way in the courtroom, it's a system of proportional revenge. It's a system in which you answer harm with harm and that's what the scales of justice represent. It's weighing the harm done to those who have harmed you is to be proportional and as long as that's the case it's considered to be just and moral. And so now I can see um, how that system, how so many problems in the system, I mean you just look around us, the wars, the murders, the laws we write on the book con continually being more punitive those are reactions actually to the brokenness that that model of justice sets in motion. So that's something I had no understanding of at all at the time, well, early in my career. So in the, in the mid-80s, about halfway through the, my time as a trial attorney, I began to realize that there was another model of justice and that one is grounded on the moral premise that harm to anyone by anyone is not acceptable. So it's a nonviolent model of justice. When harm occurs, you do answer it, absolutely, but not with more harm. And creating systems that can deliver that model of justice is now something that's happening worldwide, and it is such an amazing time to be alive. This is a period of profound change. I'm sure that the arc of history is being bent in a new direction. And we're in the midst of it. It's hard to see, but I'm confident that 25, 50 years when people look back, they are going to see clearly that this is a point in history when a revolution was in the process of unfolding. So that's where we are today, and being a part of that is very exciting. Sometimes I just marvel, how was I so lucky to be alive at this moment in time? Mm. Now, Sylvia, you being with uh, one of the things that I see as a great gift that you carry with you 
is the fact that you were within that system so deeply and very good at what you were doing too um, as, a, as a former trial attorney. And uh, I wonder if you can recall, were there any moments where you, you felt like, um, you, I mean, you, you said that you had, you, you realized that there were, um, that there was a different way to do justice, but could you could you share a little bit more about what led you to that realization? Where was that? Were there any aha moments in your in your story that that kind of led well, up to actually, that realization? Yeah, there was a major one, <laughs> and that was <laughs> uh, that was I someone said to me that she was reading this great book and. Um, she had actually, I was actually interviewing this uh, young woman to be an associate in my firm. And immediately prior to that, she had taken three months off to read this book. And I said, wow, that must be an interesting book. What's it called? She said, it's called A Course in Miracles. So I said, well, I'll have to check that out. So I got it, and I began reading it. And it was definitely talking about a world that I did not understand it was very difficult, and then I came to a sentence that said something like, there are two models of justice, uh, vengeance and love. And that was as clear as a crystal bell. I knew that I was a part of the vengeance model of justice, and I knew in that moment I was going to find out what justice as love might look like. So that's been over 20 years, I guess, now that I've been on this wow. journey of figuring out what on earth would justice as love look like. And it's been an amazing journey and speeding up at the moment because I'm having the opportunity to actually create a system based on the principles that I am coming to understand. And I'm learning so fast, so much. Every day is like a gift. Mm, wow. One of the things that, that I know that I deeply appreciate um, about Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality, which is, of course, your most recent book, which I highly recommend. Um, for those of you just joining us, by the way, welcome. And um, there's a standing invitation this evening for our conversation to please press 1 on your telephone keypad if you have a question for Sylvia or a reflection or comment that you'd like to make. That's, again, a standing invitation tonight for open conversation and dialogue at any time, and I'll do my best to get to you. So welcome. Um, so Sylvia, one of the things, again, that I, I deeply appreciate about not only in the book, but, but your, just your general work and your ability to um, clearly uh, delineate what restorative justice and uni unitive justice means um, especially in these times, uh, there seems to be a growing need to be very clear about what they mean so that, that, that we know that this road that we're paving is, is not, uh, you know, that restorative justice is, is not excusing a crime or being soft on crime, but, but rather uh, offering a very preferable alternative to a punitive system that is in, um, is, clearly based, as you say, in this wonderful grid, punitive, unitive justice grid that you have uh, within the book, um, that punitive justice is uh, reflecting the old rule of vengeance, which you've been speaking to, and is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, um, whereas unitive justice reflects the old rule of loving kindness, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So of course we, we know that in our, our world um, and in, our, in this country we, you know, we talk a lot about um, the life of Christ and, and being good Christians and, and such, and yet it, it's very clear that we're not living that through systemically uh, as it concerns the criminal justice system. Um, could you could you um, maybe speak a little bit more um, in this opening kind of section tonight about uh, the delineation between um, if I mean if if we can actually make a delineation between punitive and unitive justice uh, 
the restorative justice? And then also, are there any differences um, and nuances between unitive and restorative justice? Okay, uh, just some of the basic differences between unitive and punitive justice. For example, punitive justice is hierarchical. So you have people who commit the crime and then you have the people above them who impose the punishment, who write the laws, impose the punishment, uh, enforce compliance using that punishment so it's hierarchical. Unitive justice is non-hierarchical. It's everyone within the process of unitive justice is equal. So how would that look like? Uh, imagine sitting in a circle where no one has the authority to compel anyone to be there. Instead, people come voluntarily. No one sitting there has the authority to tell anybody what they're going to do, how this conflict is going to be resolved. That's something that emerges out of the wisdom of the participants. And what you're looking for is a mutually beneficial outcome. And so you're looking for that space where the parties can find this perfect resolution. That's what a non-hierarchical system would look like. And that also touches on two other fundamental differences. One is punitive justice, of course, is that. It's punishment. It is, and it answers harm with harm, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice lies in the harm being proportional. Um, so it's punitive, and in the unitive justice system, when you see it and experience it, you see how you limit yourself when you go for punishment, because that's, that stops you from getting to that point of discovering a mutually beneficial outcome where everyone wins, that perfect solution where the needs that each person has brought to the circle is answered. They're, they are answered. And everyone walks away feeling honored and whole and as though they have won. So when you go for punishment, you just lose this possibility that exists in unitive justice. And another significant difference is judgment. In the punitive system, it is about judging because you're judging who's guilty and who's innocent and, and that tells you what the punishment should be, how much harm is going to answer the harm that was done. All of that requires judgment. And when you're in a unitive system, it's non-judgmental. So people come to a unitive system not bearing the labels of offender or victim, but instead coming together as people who are involved in a conflict. And the goal is to see that conflict dynamic begin to unravel that conflict dynamic so that it isn't repeated over and over so that people find freedom from it. And they find these perfect solutions, this mutually beneficial outcome. So you see again that judgment is really limiting, it's constricting, and it keeps you from, from stepping into this space where this amazing model of justice emerges that it, that's where the miracles happen. But I think it's where if we can figure out how to, how to create the system that supports that, miracles will be common because it can be done. It's clear to me that this is definitely possible. It's just figuring out how to get there as often as possible. So those are some of the differences. And then if you, if you could help us to understand a bit more if there are any differences between restorative and unitive justice, or are they one and the same? Uh, well, they can be. What happened was in the United States, restorative justice is an outgrowth of the criminal court system. It began in the 70s or 80s where 
as I understand it, some Mennonites were working in a juvenile court and some juveniles engaged in some vandalism. And the punitive system seemed to not really appropriately address it. So the people who were involved asked the judge if they could simply take these juveniles who had who'd done this vandalism to the homes where they had they destroyed mailboxes. And they would admit what they'd done and they would offer to repair the harm. So the judge fortunately agreed to that. That was done. And the outcome was so much better than simply punishing the young people, the people who were harmed, not knowing why they had done it and not really having the repair mended. I mean, the harm repaired and, and mended. So that's how it began. But because of its connection to the criminal courts, it retained some of the elements of the criminal process. For example, many restorative justice programs associated with criminal courts, the offender has to first admit guilt. So you've got the judgment, you've got the hierarchy, and what they're looking for is to hold the offender accountable, but not in a punitive way, but rather in a way that restores the person. So they're shifting some things, but it retains some of the punitive elements. And what I came to see as I was determined I was going to find out what justice's love looked like was that there was a model of justice free of all of those punitive elements, but we didn't have a word for it. So that's when I coined the term unitive justice. And that's the model of justice that eliminates all of the punitive elements. So what you can actually do, or what I sought to do in that grid that you mentioned, was if you take any element of punitive justice and you think, now what would the opposite of that look like? that will take you over to what unitive justice looks like. And in restorative justice, in some restorative justice programs, that's not always the case. But in the school where we're working, we call our program a restorative justice program. But we are being guided by the principles of unitive justice. And we do work with the security staff and the school administration we are, you know, there's an interface between what we do and the punitive system that's in the school. So we don't have a pure system there because the container has not been created for that to exist. We're in the process of creating it. But we have a very clear image of where it is that we're going. And when we have those punitive elements, for example, we have security staff sit in our circles when we believe the students are at risk of getting into a fight. So that does bring in some hierarchy. Um, but we're, we know we're doing that. We're doing it for a limited time because this is the evolutionary period. And the goal is to eventually have a system that is so well grounded in the unitive principles that you would be fairly free of those punitive elements. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what that term... So restorative justice can be unitive, but it often includes punitive elements. It, it seems to me, Sylvia and everyone, that um, your work is helping to illuminate and pave perhaps a bridge, which of course um, we know that we can't fry a system too quickly with <laughs> um, these elements that are you know, what seem to be the ideal elements, uh, which also tie into a consciousness shift, um, which would be, of course, in this case, unitive justice principles in full engaged action and in, in systemically changing everything. But, but perhaps that the natural course of action would be um, unitive justice, or excuse me, restorative justice, and having some kind of a foot still in the old paradigm um, helps it to be uh, a process of integrating um, and hopefully exponentially integrating into a more full uh, development of the unitive principles. Would that be possible, that, that this is why it yeah. is the way it is, Sylvia? 
Yes, uh-huh. exactly. Uh, being in the system, I have a much greater appreciation now of that need for bridging and evolving. And it's really interesting to me how it is necessary for the old structure to help birth the new and to be a part of that process, to see it happening, to see people who are, well, as I mentioned, the security staff who are there as a part of the of that punitive model of justice, but to see how beautifully we work together and how, when it's possible, they bring the, the students to our process because then those students won't be suspended or they won't be... You know, they'll be this, they've been in circles with us, so they know what we do. And just to see how supportive they are and how they see it as a way that they can help the students when it's possible for them to to bring them to that. So it's really, and I know that in the, in the criminal courts, both the adult and the juvenile courts, that that partnership is also often in existence. There are people who are maintaining and, and fully in the punitive model of justice, and yet they are choosing to facilitate this process of transition and looking for the opportunities, the appropriate cases where people can step out of that totally punitive system and be in the unitive system. Now, what you ultimately want is a system where everyone in the community is empowered to initiate the unitive justice or the restorative justice process so you get away from the gatekeepers so you it's not a referral system but right now it's until people know about it and they are empowered and they learn to use it you do rely upon those referrals from people who are in the punitive system but in the school where we are the students more and more as they're aware of what we do when they have another conflict, they come in and they want a circle to address it. So empowering them to do that is is creating that community where the people themselves can see the conflicts early on so that they don't escalate to the point of breaking the rules or breaking the law so that people get into that suspension, school suspensions or jails or prisons, all of that. Now I can see how clearly you can move out of that system by empowering everyone in the community when they see conflict to have it addressed early using this model that's non-hierarchical, non-punitive and seeks that perfect, that mutually beneficial outcome. So you keep doing that. You begin to unravel that underlying conflict dynamic. And that older system, the punitive system, is simply needed less frequently. So one grows, as one grows, as the new grows, the other one becomes less important. And Uh it's definitely not about fighting because... Unitive justice is not about fighting anything. So it's just creating it, letting it evolve, and it is, you know, people in the punitive system, many of them are very supportive of that process and facilitate it. Great. Sylvia, we have a a member of our circle tonight that would like to make a comment or ask a question, and so I'd like to to invite him in in just a moment and welcome those of you who are just now joining us. We're sharing with Sylvia Clute tonight, author of Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality, former trial attorney, and uh, she also has her own Unitive Justice with Sylvia Clute uh, blog talk radio show every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And uh, it's just great to have you here again with us tonight, Sylvia. So let's go ahead and open it up. Um, Eric, welcome. You're live. Hi, Molly. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, Eric. Good. I, am, I first want to, want to say I'm deeply moved by what you've been saying. I feel like there's hope for the world and the future to know that somebody like yourself is leading this. So thank you. 
Actually, many people around the world are doing it. That's what's so exciting. I'm, a revolution is unfolding, but thank you. Well, yes, glad. We're, I'm glad to hear it. It's, it's new to me, so I'm going like, wow, this has been around for a while. <laughs> the, there's two questions I have. One is, you, um, how did we get here historically? How did we get so punitive? I mean, I've heard of examples like from the Navajo Indian Nation where somebody comes in and trashes a house and they have to build new cabinets, kitchen cabinets, to make amends. Uh, so clearly these other types of justice, more healing types of justice, have been around for centuries, if not millenniums. So how did we end up going the direction we went? The second thing is a mailbox is one thing. A murder is completely something different. How do you heal something so much bigger than that when you can't bring the person back? And what do you do about an, a repeat offender, for example, a multiple murdering person? So I'll leave that up to you. Thanks. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, first of all, the first question, how we got here? We got here in a very unique way, a uniquely Western way, and it's, it doesn't happen in places that didn't have, that, that didn't come out of the European tradition. What happened was in, I don't know, the 11th, 12th century, around that time, as England, what we now know as England, was all the, tri the various tribes were being consolidated. What happened was the king decided that he would impose control and order by issuing various writs to the local jurisdictions and assume, assume authority. He began to tell local jurisdictions what they could do and couldn't do. And in that process of becoming the authority, the king took this moral principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which made retribution and revenge moral, if it's proportional. Based upon that premise, the king became the, the place, the person who could seek retribution within the community by making the crime breaking the king's law so that the king became the victim. So, for example, when there was a robbery in the community, the victim in our criminal system is not the person whose property was taken. The victim is the state, and the crime is breaking the state's law. The person who was robbed is needed by the state as a witness for the state to prove that the state's law was broken, but outside of that, the victim has a minor role to play. If there's a plea bargain or a guilty plea, they don't need the victim at all. That's why so many victims feel like they're unheard, their needs aren't addressed, because they aren't. It's not a part of the system. So how we got here, that's how we got here. It was a very good system for colonizing the world, uh, for doing lots of things that were done for setting up the system that we presently have. It was hierarchical. It was punitive. You could make a law, whatever served your interest. You could enforce that law when people violated it. So it justified slavery. It justified all kinds of things. That's how we got here. And that we're now changing it is, I think, really evidence that the consciousness is evolving and also that system has sort of been stretched to the limits. We've gotten so tough on crime that the system is imploding. So we have that, you know, I just can't stress enough, this is a moment in time that's unique. This is a historical period like the Renaissance, a time when things are in such enormous change. So then the question of murder, that uh, unitive justice cannot, doesn't have an immediate answer for the brokenness that the punitive system gives rise to. Murders come out of a system where small injuries are not dealt with. They're ignored. And so people, when they're hurt, they continue to scream louder and scream louder until finally they break the law and then the state comes in 
and uses punishment as a deterrent and to control people. But murder is a symptom of a, of a culture that's broken where relationships are not healthy. And then we, we write all these laws, you know, more guns. Well, if we have murder, gee, we must need more guns. It's like if you beat your kids and they still continue to misbehave, well, what do you, what do you think you've got to do? Or, gee, I must need to beat them harder. It's that type of thing. So you have the brokenness that, that happens. Unitive justice or restorative justice can come in after a murder and help the parties deal with it in a way that's more healing, more restorative, so it can sort of help like salve on a wound. But the way that unitive justice can really address the problem of murder is by establishing a community where everyone is empowered to see that conflict, the hurts are addressed as soon as they arise so that you don't have that degree of brokenness. And as that happens, you're going to have less crime committed. You know, murder is not going to be the way people answer their harms because their harms are addressed before it gets to that point in time. So again, it's, you know, we have two systems. We do have the brokenness of the old system and unitive justice can can come in afterwards and provide some tools, but what we have to do to address murder is to build a new system based on a different moral premise, that moral premise that harm to anyone by anyone is not acceptable and it's not moral. And that's when we will be safe. If you want to be safe, then be sure everybody's safe, and that's by saying we don't hurt people, we don't accept people being hurt. Now, when that happens, we will respond. Yes, we will address it, but not in ways that are themselves hurtful and that give rise to more brokenness. Mm. Thank you so much for that question, too, Eric, and for being here tonight with us. And um, we've got a lot of hands popping up, Sylvia. Um, so let, let's go ahead and, and uh, well, first of all, I'd just like to say to Eric and Sylvia both that that, that question to me also points to um, the area of uh, unitive and restorative justice that might be um, a target for you know, critics who say that it's soft on crime or that it, um, it doesn't address uh, you know, the, the crime in a way that is appropriate. And um, in some ways, to me, it appears that our very DNA is wired, uh, when a, when, especially when a violent crime happens. You know, our limbic systems are up, and we, you know, we really, as human beings, want to fix, and we, we rush to the fix. Um, and so perhaps part of this is that we're, we're re, realigning to a process that that helps us to be patient in, in the process of, of letting, uh, uh, allowing for the natural course of understanding and of, of hearing all of the people involved because restorative justice to me, and you can of course correct me here, Sylvia, if I'm wrong, um, that it, it, restorative justice is about, about uh, equilibrium and equal opportunity for there to be a recognition of, of course, the, first and foremost, the victims, and then the community and the perpetrator and the understanding that there's, a, that there's also a, a victim in the perpetrator as well. And certainly that's a consciousness issue. Um, and like you're saying, we are in extraordinary times um, in, in witnessing in action a very possible giant consciousness shift in, in the direction towards there being an understanding of these principles. Um, right. One thing that's really interesting about the issue of victims is when you have this um, restorative justice circle, especially if it's based on the unitive principles and you're looking for that mutually beneficial outcome, what's best for the, for the victim often is something happening that gives meaning to their loss gives value to their loss 
because of something that comes out of it. So that this is the example of what I'm saying. Okay, say, for example, uh, this is a case that actually happened. A robber came in and stole the laptop computer of a surgeon. Well, the robber thought, hey, you know, he's rich. He can just go down and buy him a new, a new computer. The surgeon had his notes on there for his surgery the next day. And so when that was stolen, he couldn't just go to the store and buy another one. He couldn't, he couldn't provide the service to his patients. And he was devastated. And there were other people that were harmed in a way that the robber never imagined. So they came together in the circle. And the robber hears and sees the doctor actually cry at how painful it was not to be able to do that. And at the same time, and in that, you know, the robber begins to talk about well, how it happened and how, how he just had learned from childhood, really. He'd grown up in a family that burglarized and he'd been taught to rob and got on drugs very early at a very early age. And as the doctor hears that, what the doctor wants to do is to help that person get off drugs help that person get another job, get some education, so that other people aren't harmed the way the doctor is. So that's what I mean. The doctor sees this mutually beneficial outcome in helping the offender, not punishing them, but helping him to heal so that other people aren't hurt, so that the doctor's harm, the value that arises out of that is that all of these other people will not be hurt because of the help that he extends. And in that way, his loss is given a value. It's not just a waste. Something very important comes out of it. And that's the way the unitive justice works. It's not linear. We try to make justice linear in the courtroom, but in a, in a unitive process, it's very circular and holographic and intricate and you can't know I mean that perfect solution has to come from the people that are in it but so in that you know so the doctor couldn't change the past but the doctor could walk out of that saying that other people aren't going to experience that and I'm going to help that happen and then you have this person who you know was taught all their life to be this person who harmed others and walks out of there saying you know, maybe I am worth something. It's amazing that this person who I hurt sees value in me. You know, when things like that happen, you say, oh, why would I ever do what we do in a courtroom? <laughs> mm. oh, Sylvia, we, like, like I was saying, we have some hands up, but, but one of the, the things I'd like to do first is just to flip it on its head here and say, what do you do when a, a victim... It's just simply decided on vengeance, and there is just no no swaying them. We know that it's a this is a very sensitive place to be, first of all, and that things can't be forced. But but right. what what are your thoughts there? And then we'll go to well, another. Yes, question. there's a system set up to give them what they want. Mm. You know, they have to take all the shortcomings with that system too. But that system is still in place. And this other system does have to be voluntary. It can't be coerced because that is inconsistent with the integrity of the system. But as people see, you know, that there's no loss and that there's, you know, healing in it for everyone, fewer people make that choice. But at this point in time, yeah, there, there's still a lot of brokenness from that other system, and that is going to happen. Uh-huh. All right, let's go ahead and open up the mic to Mike. Welcome, Mike. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I have a question. Is how you see self-defense fitting into all this? Obviously, last month's issues in Florida has raised this, raised this issue considerably, but from your point of view, how, how do you see immediate self-defense? 
in the punitive system, there are all kinds of rules and you know, you've got something that's out of balance, so you do something else to try to balance it out. And self-defense is a part of that. You say that it's moral to hurt people, but of course only in certain circumstances. But if we demonstrate for our children that when we're upset, what we do is hurt people, we need to expect our children when they feel upset that they're going to hurt people. And so you have this rule, you know, well, people are going to hurt you. Well, when that happens, you have a right to hurt them back, and we call that self-defense. And if that's the case, then in the courtroom, if you can prove that, then that's the technicality that you're not held guilty of the law. Somebody else has broken the law, not you. And that's, you know, it's a very complicated system because basically it's built on this untruth that the victim is the state. And you have the might of the state against individuals, so that requires all of these due process rules that try to balance the playing field that's very out of balance. And self-defense is just one of those bandages that you put on a system that says it's okay to hurt people under certain circumstances, and self-defense is one of those circumstances where we say, yeah, if you can prove that, then it's okay to hurt somebody or kill them. It's just a part of that system. That's the way you live when you live in that system. But when, you know, in the other system, you just, as I said, you just create a system where you deal with the, the hurts early on in a way that as often as possible you want to have this mutually beneficial outcome so that there's a healing and the hurts don't continue. So those circumstances where self-defense is so important in the punitive system, it just, it doesn't, it's not a part of this other system. Just, just quickly, just to give you an example of this mutually beneficial outcome and what would have been lost had there been punishment. There was a student at school who was behaving terribly and the student had a long history of misbehaving and had been in the court system but also lived in a group home. So all kinds of difficulties were in the student's life. The student was behaving terribly in a given classroom. In the circle, what emerged was that the teacher was making the student sit in the front row and the student wanted to sit in the back and the teacher wouldn't permit him to do that because when he sat back there, he tore things off the bulletin board and the teacher needed to see that he was doing his work and behaving. And the student was doing these awful things. So in the circle, I asked the teacher, why does he need to sit in the front row? And he explained. And, and then I said to the student, why is it important to you to sit in the back row? And he said, because when I was in detention and in other places, when I couldn't see who was behind me, it wasn't safe. Bad things happened to me. So I asked the teacher, what did you hear him say? And the teacher said, you're obviously touched by that. He said, he doesn't feel safe in my classroom. So the teacher says, this is what I'll do. I will see that you have a seat where you feel safe, and in return, I want you to do your work. And the student says, okay. So they entered an agreement, and that student stopped that horrible behavior. And the student was hurt. Actually, when I turned to the student and asked him, when the, when the teacher said, I, I hear him saying he's not safe in my classroom, and I said to the student, is that it, using Dominic Barter's process? And the student said, yes, that's it. There was that moment in time where you knew they had hurt each other, there was this connection, and out of that came this perfect solution. So if that student had been punished, once again, he would not have been heard. He was being taught again. He wasn't important. His needs were never met. He was go back and scream louder. So, you know, when you see these types of things, you just, you know, see the value of <laughs> making that your life's work. Mm. Which is what you're doing, Sylvia. And thank you, Mike, for your question. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for being here tonight. Um and uh, Sylvia, I know we're we're getting close to. <laughs> it's been a quick hour tonight. There's so much ground to cover, and it's so robust. Um, and 
I wondered, I, I know we have another hand up, but could you just say a few more words about the on-the-ground work that you're doing right now? Because you're working really closely with kids and um, just the framework that brought you to that. And I know that you're a part of the restorative justice um, group in, in Virginia. Is that correct? Yes, I'm uh, the program coordinator for uh, Restorative Youth Services of Virginia. That's actually the service provider in the school that's um, that created and is providing the restorative justice services. It's just this absolutely amazing experience. It's like a laboratory. For about 20 years, I studied these two models of justice. I was in one of them, but the other one was theoretical. And then this was an opportunity to, to design a program uh, that would be based on unitive principles. And the main thing, the main way we did that was I looked at all of the information I could find on restorative justice programs in schools and selected from those elements that were non-punitive that would be consistent with the unitive justice principles. So it wasn't only circles. Circles are not enough. You can't change the whole culture with circles. So we wanted more tools. So we have a plan for a restorative uh, classroom that has various elements that will have other tools for the students and teachers to use to intervene in conflict early on. We have a mentoring program, which is small, but it's another way that the community can help heal, that, that, that people in the community know they are empowered to look for conflict early and to help resolve the conflict early. So we're putting these pieces together, experimenting with it, finding what works, what doesn't, finding out what it's like to swim upstream <laughs> when the current is going very strong in the other direction. And so, you know, there's a lot of difficulties, and yet we see the seeds that we've sown definitely begin to, you know, to sprout. We have students who've been in a number of circles that are coming in. When there's a conflict, they ask for a circle. And we're also seeing things happen in circles. Like I just happened to look at four circles that one particular student was in. And in three of those, there was not an agreement that was reached. That mutually beneficial outcome didn't happen at the end, but the fight didn't happen. And then on the fourth one, when the student came back, she came in, she wanted a circle, and she knew how to do it. The student that, came, that she uh, wanted to have the circle with hadn't had that experience before, but the one who had experience, she just immediately got started on it. That circle went well. And that circle, one reason it went well is because I could see the social skills that the student had learned from the three prior circles. She was actually contributing to her own victimization by bullying, by things that she did that irritated other students, and she had gotten feedback on that in these circles, and she was learning not to do that. So you see, so many things are happening there that you don't even expect or you can't foresee. So I'm having this, you know, this learning, this being a part, being witness to these amazing kids and seeing how magnificent they can be in that space where they have a, this, this opportunity. Mm. Sylvia, if you could name maybe a handful of tools that you're using in your restorative classroom that you just mentioned, what would those be? What are, what are some of the, the tools that, that you find to be most effective in helping our youth and, and ourselves in gaining a better understanding and grasp of how to go about setting that foundation for for this fruitful practice? Well, I can tell you what the design provides for. It, it didn't happen the way we envisioned for any number huh. of reasons. And when it didn't happen the first few days of school, it was very hard to go back and put it in because they were already behind in getting ready for SOLs. It's amazing how immersed the whole educational process is in the needs of standards of learning testing. Uh, 
Uh-huh. So anyway, but the but the elements that we designed for it, and I think would work well, and we're going to try it again in a smaller uh, section of the school. It is a classroom agreement where the students come to an agreement of how they want to be treated and how they agree to treat other people, including the teachers, so that when someone violates that, they can say, we have an agreement and you've broken our agreement. So that's a tool. And many of those, many of the pieces of that will be the same rules that are imposed by the school, but the source is different. So they don't say to a student, you've broken the school rule. They can say, you've broken our agreement. Another one is a micro-circle process where people just have a tool to intervene in a, in a conflict early on, right where it's happening, in a very short questioning process that they can learn. And then the third one is classroom circles, when there's something that involves all of the class. For example, when there's been a murder on the weekend and the students come in and the pall is over the whole school, in order to have the students, and there were, this did happen on just a few occasions, where the students then can circle up and deal with their grief and their fear and whatever else is coming up then in a circle so that they can more easily get their minds back on the education process. So those were the three elements of a restorative classroom. And like I said, all the pieces haven't gotten in place yet, but this is our first year. So that was, you know, it was looking for tools like that. And there may well be others. Uh-huh. People listening to this might think of things that could be in that. What we intend to do is next summer I will spend some time writing up a manual of the pieces, you know, what we designed, and we're going to make it open source on the Internet. So anyone can look uh-huh. at it, take what is helpful, give us feedback. You know, we can keep tweaking it. But we want to share what we've learned and what, the work that we did, just share it with anyone who can possibly use it, or pieces of it, whatever. Wonderful. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask your permission for us to go a few minutes over um, tonight. I want to also respect to all the members of this circle's time, but I, I do want to go ahead and field um, another question since we've had hands up again. Um, that's okay with you, Sylvia? Yeah, that's fine. Great. Okay, welcome Nancy. Uh, yes, hi, good evening. Hi, Sylvia. Um, hi, Nancy. This is um, maybe, it's awfully late in the hour, and m- maybe a question for another time on your radio blog. Um, I just finished reading Destiny Unveiled this week, in fact. And, oh, uh, great. What, yeah, it, and it, it's intriguing in a lot of ways. <laughs> I totally That's my under- novel. I don't, I I don't know, think Molly totally yeah, Yes, the Freemasonry and stuff. Anyway, um, the creator and the the um, the quite a bit of emphasis, quite a bit of um, in the novel, especially on spirituality and the presence of some higher power. How how and we're sec, you know we are a secular society so how, how do you um, approach that in your in the system at the school level? Um, you know, religion has a lot of elements to it that are very divisive and keeps us separate, and a lot of judgment, a lot of hierarchy. Punishment actually, actually, our punitive system of judges of justice would not exist, I believe, if it didn't have religion giving it moral legitimacy. So, now religion is a problem in schools for all of those reasons. You know, my religion is right, yours is wrong. This is, you know, you're going to be punished in this way by a higher power because you do this or that or the other. So, in a school, that's a very divisive element. But when you get to a model of justice based on love, no problem putting that in a school. Uh, You know, there's nothing there that's divisive or judgmental or tears people apart or separates them. 
all of the things, all of the problems that religion would cause in a school are not caused by unity justice. Secular, you know, religious, wherever, it's, it reduces those, that, that sense of separation instead of reinforcing it. Sylvia, um, thank you again also, Nancy, for that question. Thank you. Very good question. Um, before we close tonight, there's, there was a piece that I really would like to, to, to close with, and that's um, you and I were talking in the green room a bit about um, the on-the-ground work that we're both doing in restorative justice in our communities. And I was just wondering if somebody wants to, to start something in their community or find out more about, I mean, obviously I, I've said all throughout tonight and will continue to talk um, wildly about your book, Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality, which I just wrote a review for on Amazon today um, because I find it to be one of the, the clearest handbooks um, that help us to understand what unitive and restorative justice are and how they work and where to find resources and materials. But I found it really interesting that, that you were mentioning, because I, I find this to be true for myself, it really is a matter of jumping in. It's jumping in and testing the waters and, and responding to what's at hand, is it not? It is. And intention is probably 99% of you know, the most important thing. If your intention is to, to extend love, people will know that. And the mistakes you make, many people will be forgiving of them. And there's no other way to learn. It's a new territory for most of us. I don't know how else you... Well, you know, you can go and study with people, and that's definitely, you need some understanding when you begin, but there's no substitute for simply doing it. And I applaud you and admire your courage in taking on a very difficult situation and simply doing that. And I know that you, the people you come into contact with, will know that you're there to extend them love. And one of the, the other aspects that you have conveyed tonight, Sylvia, about this process is the simple fact that we, uh, what, what is needed emerges. So it, it, it rhymes and, and, and resonates with me as more of a heart-centered process than one that is guided by uh, the mental alone and the linear. And, and so this is, this is a journey that is, is definitely a courageous one. And, and there's even uh, quite a few people on this call tonight from the community in Colorado um, that are in that courageous path with me. And together, uh, I know that we will continue to forge something um, and allow it to show us the way as well. And, and finally, I just, just want to ask you real quick, I know that you are a fan of, of Dominic Barters, and of course he was Absolutely. on this, this program um, a few weeks ago, coming from live from Rio. And uh, do you do you work with his processes? So when you were speaking about the circles, um, is that is that what you're referring to? Is restorative circles, and 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 what you've gained from his his uh, acumen around these processes? Yes. Actually, what happened was, as I mentioned, I realized that there were two models of justice. So I sought to find out what justice as love would look like. And what I found were principles. And the question was, how do you actually implement those principles? How do you build a structure? As I began to look at restorative justice programs, many of which are associated with the criminal courts, I saw many elements of unitive justice in them, but I knew that there were pieces that were not unitive. So then I go to Dominic Barter's training in Atlanta. It was actually after I wrote Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality. So I have more information now. I need to make revisions to that book. But I walked in, and when he was talking, 
As soon as I heard him, I knew that he was describing a system that was free of all of the punitive elements. And so I sat there and I listened very carefully. And I learned so much from him about how you would create a system that we're trying to do. You know, I could, I could then understand, yes, this is what a unitive justice system based on love would really look like. He just gave me the pieces of the puzzle that I had not been able to grasp before. So I have great admiration and respect and love for Dominic Barter. He's amazing. Well, and I'll, I'll look forward to uh, the next uh, either version of the book or a, a new book, in fact, in the future. Is there one possibly? Um, yeah, you don't, have to, you don't have to say. No, no, no. no I, there's no secrets about it. On my blogs, I share my understanding as it grows on GenuineJustice.com. That's a blog. I'm doing it less frequently than I was because of the school program and the time that takes. But I do try to share on there my growing understanding. And I just went back and looked at some earlier blogs and I said, oh, I need to rewrite these. Because being in the school, I now have vastly more understanding than I did before I got there and was actually trying to construct a system. So... I do continually share on my blogs and my radio programs. I, you know, pick some particular element of it and then talk about it for an hour. Uh-huh. Although ne- next Sunday I'm going to have two guests on. So again, Sylvia, it has been just a really wonderful pleasure and honor to have you here with us tonight. I'm so grateful for your time, and I just want to say to everybody. Before you hop off, um, Sylvia has given me permission to go ahead and share with you all the grid which she was speaking about, the punitive unitive grid. So that will go out in an email that will also include the archive from tonight's call, which will also again be posted at my website, which is mollyrowanpresents.com. Click on the Upcoming Events tab. You can find all the archives from this entire series stemming back to last summer. And um, be sure to check out again, Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality, A Call for a Compassionate Revolution by Sylvia Clute. Also check out her radio show every Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Blog Talk Radio Show. And again, her website is sylviaclute.com. So grateful to you all. And... Until next time, thank you and good night. Thank you, Molly.